0: Welcome to SLP Nerdcast.
1: I'm Kate. And I'm Amy, and we appreciate you tuning in. In our podcast, we review and provide commentary on resources, literature, and we discuss issues related to the
0: field of speech-language pathology. You can use this podcast for ASHA CEUs. For more information about us and certification maintenance hours or CEUs, go to our website, www.slpnerdcast.com. SLP Nerdcast is brought to you in part by listeners like you. Even small contributions keep our CEU prices low and our program ad-free. You can contribute on our website by clicking support our work. On our website, you can also find permanent products, notes, and other handouts. Some items are free, others are not, but everything is always affordable. Visit our website to submit a call for papers to come on the show and present with us. Contact us anytime on Facebook, Instagram, or at info at slpnerdcast.com. We love hearing from our listeners, and we can't wait to learn what you have to teach us.
1: And just a quick disclaimer, the contents of this episode are not meant to replace clinical advice. SLP Nerdcast, its hosts and guests do not represent or endorse specific products or procedures mentioned during our episodes unless otherwise stated. We are not PhDs, but we do research our material. We do our best to provide a thorough review and a fair representation of each topic that we tackle. With that being said, it's always likely that there's an article we've missed or another perspective that we haven't shared. If you have something to add to the conversation, please email us. We
0: do love to hear from you. We do. And if you're still with us after reading that tremendously long and boring introduction, you are in for a treat. We're very excited about today's episode. And we have the pleasure of welcoming Chelsea Prevett, who is almost Dr. Prevett. Welcome, Chelsea.
2: Thank you, it's so good to be here.
0: And Chelsea, you are here
1: today to discuss language ideology and linguistic diversity. But before we even get started, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yes, so I am a doctoral candidate at the University of Arizona under the mentorship of Dr. Leah Fabiano-Smith. And my research involves bilingualism and language contact. Specifically, I look at the interaction between Spanish and African-American English in preschoolers.
0: This is so interesting. This talk is going to be so good. I, I really, I really <laughs> just can't wait. Um, we are, are very excited to get going. But before we jump into it, um, every, our regular listeners know that we have to read The Powers That Be require that we read all of this mumbo jumbo, the first of which is our learning objectives for the day. Um, learning objective number one, define the dominant language ideology in the United States. Learning objective number two, describe linguistic environment in inclusive terms. And learning objective number three, distinguish between inclusive and Anglo-centric terminology in clinical documentation and professional meetings. Our financial disclosures. Chelsea's financial disclosures. Chelsea's research is funded by the National Institute on Deafness and Other Communication Disorders. Chelsea has no uh, non-financial relationships to disclose. Um, Kate, that's me. My financial disclosures, I'm the owner and founder of Grand Bois Therapy and Consulting, LLC, and co-founder of SLP Nerdcast. My non-financial disclosures, I'm a member of ASHA SIG 12, and I serve on the AAC Advisory Group for Massachusetts Advocates for Children. I'm also a member of the Berkshire Association for Behavior Analysis and Therapy, Mass ABA, the Association for Behavior Analysis International, and the Corresponding Speech Pathology and Applied Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group. Take it away, Amy.
1: Well done. Um, My financial disclosures, I am an employee of a public school and I'm co-founder of SLP Nerdcast. My non-financial disclosures, I am a member of ASHA SIG 12 and I serve on the AAC Advisory Group for Massachusetts Advocates for Children. Okay, now the fun stuff. Chelsea, we have had a number of listener questions on this topic. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about language ideology in the United States, but, but really just language ideology in general what is it what should we know about it
2: (laughs) so I want to start by reading a formal definition Um, one that I really like is from Jane Hill who is a linguistic anthropologist and in her book the everyday language of white racism she defines language ideology as quote sets of interested positions about language that represent themselves as forms of common sense that rationalize and justify the forms and functions of text and talk. They sort out language structures and ways of using language as good or bad, correct or incorrect, and they link these with persons who are thought to be good or bad, moral or immoral. The label ideology suggests a way of thinking or a perspective saturated with political and economic interest. So simply put, Language ideology is what we believe about language and how it should be used. So it's not about the linguistic forms per se, because linguistically speaking, every dialect is just as generative and creative and logical and effective as any other dialect, but we are socially instructed about how various dialects should be received. So language ideologies are about our subjective evaluations of language varieties.
0: That was a very dense definition, and I'm very glad that you broke that down. I mean, <laughs> that was like brilliant, and I was hanging on to every word, um, and I, I have to assume in my, you know, this is not my field of study, but I have to assume that these perspectives are inherent in what we do without us realizing it.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And we will talk about that. <laughs> Am I jumping the gun <laughs> by accident? My dad.
1: <laughs> well, and I know from our first learning objective that you're going to talk not just about language ideology, but language ideology in the United States, which makes me yes. think that perhaps language ideology is something that is going to differ depending upon where you are in the world. Yes. And what the thoughts are in the world about those languages.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah, tell, tell us more about that.
2: Yeah, so it does depend on where you are in the world. Um, and the United States is actually unique because most other places in the world have multiple languages that are recognized officially. And even though the United States is one of the few countries who does not have an official language, it is one of the countries that is most insistent on having a single language that is considered the standard. So the dominant language ideology in the United States is referred to as the monoglot standard. Jane Hill also talks about this in her book, but it was originally described by Silverstein in 1996. And according to the monoglot standard, there is only one correct way of speaking and other dialects can be ranked according to our perception about the people and the cultures associated with them. So the standard, and I'm using air quotes here, is given a respectable history that explains its prestige and access to elite spaces, for example, academic and business require the use of the designated standard. This access of course is moderated by race, meaning that an individual from a minoritized race is not guaranteed entry into certain spaces just because of their use of standard English, but the standard is expected from anyone wishing to gain access.
0: I mean, and and I, I know that this is such a complex issue and what comes to the forefront of my mind is the casual way. So I have never heard that term monoglot standard. That's not a, that's not a term that I've come across in my reading or my work. I have heard other descriptions, like one that came to the forefront of my mind was the King's English. That's, Mm, you know, colonial. I have like an accent in my mind when I say it, I feel like this is, you know, it's a concept that is in the, maybe the forefront of our culture, even though it's not discussed or it's not, you know, realized as being, what is described in this literature beautifully as m- the monoglot standard and in, in, in terms of identifying it and for, for its complexity and like what it actually is.
2: Right, and I wanna talk more about that word standard. And I put standard in air quotes because standard language is artificially constructed, at least here in the United States. It includes features that are not part of our natural production of English, for example, double negatives. This is a feature that is present in many languages of the world in their mainstream and non-mainstream varieties. But someone decided that language should follow mathematical skills and since negative times a negative equals a positive, then they cancel each other out. So we shouldn't use double negatives. But if I say something like, I ain't never seen nothing like that before there's no confusion about what I'm saying, right? You know what I'm saying because that's what we naturally do with language. We reiterate and we emphasize using multiple features. But since features like that have been canceled essentially from standard English, people who still use them are perceived to be uneducated or unintelligent. What's important to recognize about language ideology is that language is highly racialized in US society for a plethora of reasons that I won't get into here. But if we just think about the names that we use to describe dialects, for example, African-American English, Southern White English, Chicano English, race is encoded into the label And even when it's not, for example, Appalachian English, Spanish-influenced English, we have racialized identities that we associate with those dialects. And even if you're only somewhat familiar with the dialects other than your own, you make racial associations based on auditory input alone. And most of us are pretty good at it. There's a study by Purnell, Itzardi, and Baugh from 1999, and in this study, listeners were 80% accurate at identifying dialects just from the hearing the word hello. And I think this experiment speaks of our linguistic dexterity as humans Wow. Just from hello. Just from hello. It
1: makes me think though of all those like infant studies you learn about like in grad school where like the infants are able to differentiate. I can't remember the age, but at some ridiculously early age, infants are able to differentiate sounds that are typical in their language versus sounds from a different language. Um Mm -hmm. exactly. So that yeah, that's wild.
2: That is wild. So it's a really cool skill to have. So again, the problem is not that we can distinguish between different dialects. The problem is that we make ill-informed evaluations of a person's race, because remember dialect and race are not interchangeable, even though sometimes they're spoken of as if they are, but the bigger problem is that we make these evaluations based on racist ideas that we have absorbed through the news, through the media, through politics, through everyday language. So instead of taking linguistic information as just that information, we act on it in ways that are discriminatory. So we favor some people over others because of the dialect we speak. And linguist John Baugh calls this linguistic profiling, which when acted upon in a negative way turns into linguistic discrimination. So in the same study I just mentioned, the authors demonstrated that landlords discriminate against speakers of non-mainstream dialects, denying prospective tenants housing because of a brief phone conversation. So this type of linguistic discrimination has been confirmed by other researchers in the area of housing and employment as well. But as John Baugh notes, linguistic profiling is very pervasive. It's happening all the time because it happens whenever we hear someone speak. So as speech language pathologists, we have to be especially careful about discriminatory language ideologies because it's our job to evaluate people's language abilities. So if we don't check the biases that we carry about language, then we end up pathologizing speakers from minoritized communities, which this has major implications for the way other professionals perceive our clients and the opportunities that are offered to them, especially when we're talking about pediatric populations. And I wanna point out a longitudinal study that was performed by the Center on American Progress, which showed that teachers have lower expectations for students of color and students from low SES backgrounds. And I think this is important for us to consider because in this study, they showed that preschool teacher expectations predicted high school GPA and high school teacher expectations predicted college graduation they found that teacher expectation is a more robust predictor of student achievement than student motivation and student effort. So as SLPs, we have the opportunity to set the tone for the expectations that are set for our clients. And we'll talk about how we can set a positive tone, Um, but I want to continue to talk about how the monoglot standard manifests in our work. And
1: I, you know, obviously this is not my area of research. I feel like you've like exploded my brain already three times. So this is
0: real I'm, good. Nobody can see my face. My hands, my hands, my head's like resting. I'm just overwhelmed. And, and I totally interrupted you. Amy. No, Please I'm, continue. no, it's, I think though, it's, it's
1: such a, we, we talk, we're speech and language people. So we're focused on the speech and the language. And I think You know, I think back to when I was in grad school, even the terminology that we're using to describe that monoglot standard, like we're, you know, we're using things like mainstream and standard and these, you know, words that have a connotation to them. And it's one of those things where, I mean, I feel like step one, I, I want to step back and just like, think about all the things that have kind of just been automatic, right? That we've never given... Or perhaps I've never given conscious thought to, and I think if you kind of don't do that first, you're you're not even aware, and so you're entering into it in a
0: in a bad place, yeah. And that's the beginning of the road where my brain is, because then it just goes on and on and on about you know just that study you mentioned with the, and I'm going to mess it up because that's what I do here, but the, how the teacher, the teacher expectations were a better predictor than student motivation. Was it expectations? That's right. Teacher expectations. Right. So if, if what Amy is saying, you know, we have these, these automatic biases or we we don't have the self-reflection to sit and and tease these apart. And yet we're the language specialists on the team. We're the teachers. I mean, that is a tremendous lost opportunity and, and a tremendous responsibility for our field. And I am, it's just my brain's, expl- I have pieces of brain. It's well, just, and it's I'm sure everywhere. you'll,
1: I'm sure you'll talk more about this, but it, I mean, it does, it makes me think about assessments. We talk a lot about assessments on here. Like what is the assessment process? What are the inherent biases that are built into the assessment tools that we may be using or not using? Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about you know, I mean, I've, I've worked in schools, I work in a school right now, and we talk a lot about eligibility for special education, like, it sounds like a whole extension of that is we're perhaps qualifying people who shouldn't be qualified, because they don't actually have a speech and language disability. Um, So there's a lot, there's a lot of, I don't know, responsibility there, There's a lot of responsibility to figure it out.
2: Yeah, and both of you pointed out something really important, which is language ideologies are implicit. Most of us don't think about what we think about language. We just use language and take in the information that we're taught most often in schools about how language is quote-unquote supposed to be used. But these implicit ideas about language inform the way we approach clients from non-mainstream backgrounds as a whole profession. So we circulate terms that perpetuate the monoglot standard by centering monolingual mainstream American English as the norm. So for example, we have literature that talks about dialect speakers or people with an accent when everyone speaks a dialect and everyone has an accent, right? And That's as John boss says, he has a wonderful TED talk and he says to speak without an accent is to cease from speaking. I was just about <laughs> to say,
0: you'd have to not speak. Exactly. <laughs> Jeez. So Asha, if you're listening, this should be required training <laughs> for all speech pathologists.
2: I'm just saying. So Another term that I wanna talk about is culturally and linguistically diverse. Because we use that term and even just diverse to talk about a single linguistic or cultural community and sometimes even an individual as diverse. But what we need to recognize is that the language of difference is inherently comparative. And again, it centers monolingual mainstream American English as normal and everything else as divergent. Legal scholar, Martha Minow and educator Alfredo Artiles, they both have great work on this. They talk about how we are so used to talking about difference in standardized terms that we miss the fact that the one calling the difference also has a perspective and a culture that is not objective. So when we call a specific population or an individual diverse, we are comparing them to an assumed norm, which is white, middle, upper class, monolingual, mainstream, i.e. white supremacy. Yes, white supremacy.
0: (laughs) You can say it again.
2: One more time for the people (laughs) in the back. White (laughs) supremacy. (laughs) Because people shy away from that term because they think of the capital rights, yep. maybe, yep. <laughs> like white supremacist groups. But the way racism works is in hierarchical terms. So anytime you're elevating whiteness as the norm, that is white supremacy. So being different from white in our society also means being inferior to white. And so we have inherited this deficit perspective of anything that doesn't fit into that and clinically that shows up as us focusing on what the client from a mainstream a non-mainstream background doesn't have much more than what they do have so a child who is white is seen as bringing a particular background to build on but children who are not white have all of these cultural or experiential deficits that make them, quote unquote, at risk. I was gonna say there's a lot of air quotes going on
0: around here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because these are terms that we, we have to interrogate, that we have to question. Why are they seen as at risk? Because they don't have the same experiences as white children. They're not seen as having anything to bring to the table because their experiences and the richness of their culture is not validated or leveraged for learning in a meaningful way. And
1: again, these are all terms that for me, probably for some of our listeners, we hear used pretty frequently, right? So if you're using these Mm -hmm. terms and not unpacking all the things that go behind those
0: terms, like you're sort of perpetuating the problem. Or using the terms without the self-reflection skills to begin the process. So, I mean, again, you know, there's this long road and the beginning of that road is, is that self-reflection and acknowledgement that it exists Then, then, you know, pursuing that education. And again, that tremendous responsibility that we have as professionals in the speech and language world treating clients who don't fit that, quote, standard. And I am just, you know disheartened that it's, you know, and, and just connecting all the dots that we've talked about, how implicit, it is, how, how implicit it is, how automatic it is, how, you know, and how our field as a whole doesn't necessarily have a standard to begin addressing that. Right.
1: I also feel like most of us got into this field as speech language pathologists because we want to help people. We are helping, we are helping professionals. We want to do the right thing. We want to help our clients and so i think for most people a lot of this is going to be knowing what questions we should be asking ourselves and where we can find more information i mean i agree with kate i wish that this had been more and of a part of my training when i was in school a a medium long time ago so i mean but (laughs) i think moving forward you know there there is this idea that i guess i'm I'm looking forward to hearing from you about if you're a listener and you're thinking, Oh, geez, I need to learn a lot more about this. Like what are some kind of action step type things? What can we start doing now? can we, are there certain tests we can use? Should we be saying things differently? Um, cause I think most of us want to be doing a good job.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do have a few recommendations that I want to talk about um, and these are everyday practices that we can implement that may require some getting used to, but I think that um, even though they may seem like um, inconsequential changes in our vocabulary, I think they really matter in terms of shifting the way we think about um, non-mainstream dialects. So. First, my first recommendation is to not talk about dialect speakers or people with an accent because again, that's everyone. So instead acknowledge mainstream American English as a dialect. Janet Edding recently published an article on ASHA Live about naming the dialects of all of your clients, including those who speak mainstream American English because we usually say this client speaks insert non-mainstream dialect, but we never say this person speaks mainstream American English. So talk about the dialects of all of your clients, if you must. I talk about dialects as much as I do now because I do research about dialects to educate other SLPs but when I was in the school full time where most of the students were non-mainstream dialect speakers, I didn't talk about dialects much at all. It came up sometimes if a teacher asked about it, which was not often, but I don't need to talk about their dialect in order to talk about if they have a disorder or not. I need to know what dialect they speak in order to evaluate them appropriately, but, I indicate their dialect on the top of their the report so that the next SOP will have that frame of reference but I don't go into an IEP meeting talking about all of the ways that a child differs from mainstream American English.
0: Is it it's obviously relevant for the assessment process right but by is it even relevant for the actual clinical treatment that you are doing and if not Why, you know, are we, are therapists and speech pathologists, including this information out of habit? Like, where did that come from?
2: I will talk about that too. (laughs) Yeah, because we are, that's the, the differences that we're taught to identify, right? Is it a difference or disorder? And so we feel the need to talk about all of these differences, but Dwelling on quote unquote differences, again, air quotes, it casts a deficit lens on the client's typical linguistic behaviors, and it can cause shame for the caregiver in the room who speaks the non mainstream dialect when you're pointing out all of the ways that their loved one is not meeting your expe- expectation of normal or typical language. So, going deeper into that difference versus disorder paradigm. Um, Jana Edding again, with her colleagues Gregory and Riviere, they challenge that paradigm because the difference versus disorder is an either or approach. So it leads to some clinicians putting clients who speak a non mainstream dialect in one box or the other. But it's a false dichotomy. So they propose disorder within a dialect because it reminds us that everyone speaks a dialect and that for any given dialect, there's only a small percentage of people who have a disorder. So that's another way to shift our thinking about language variation.
1: And thinking about it, I'm gonna say it back to you cause maybe I got it wrong. Um, but thinking about relative to others who speak your dialect, do you have a disorder? Instead of trying to separate out you right. either have a disorder or, or
2: you're speaking a dialect. Those are two fake exactly. boxes that we're putting you in. Exactly. So the next recommendation has to do with dual language learners. In a new paper, Soto-Larsen and Oswalski, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, the authors talk about monoglossic versus heteroglossic terminology. So monoglossic language centers English as the standard, while heteroglossic language does not impose monolingual English expectations. For example, saying dual language learners rather than English language learners. So it should be our goal to support the client's full language abilities, which includes all of their languages and dialects, Um, And focusing on English to the exclusion of their other languages is actually detrimental to optimal language development. And so we should move away from language that assumes that monolingual mainstream American English is the pinnacle of language development and should be the target for dual language learners
1: again these are like tiny shifts right you're accustomed to saying english language learners you shift to dual language learners not that hard to do just change your habit but but mm-hmm. the idea behind that is very different
0: exactly so i'm going to ask a i'm going to ask a question a, a, a question on purpose i'm going to play a devil's advocate question okay. so let's say that someone is listening to this and having the th- conversation with themselves and saying well why what's the difference they mean the same thing and i i, I think it's important to impact unpack the importance of semantics there so right to that person who is asking that question oh well this is just politically correct sort of nonsense and they, they mean the same thing I, that's, I don't need to do that they they're the same thing
2: but they're not the same thing <laughs> Because, so again, like we're the language specialists and we should be as accurate as possible in the language that we use to describe a person's language abilities. And so to say English language learner, particularly when we're talking about children who are still learning any language that they're speaking, right? They're not just learning English, they're learning their native language as well. And that's important to recognize. It's important that we recognize the other, the abilities in their language other than English as linguistic skills that they're bringing to the table, not as a child who doesn't know English.
0: And I was going to, and I feel like another perspective is, you know, the reason to shift that language is for inclusion because you want your clients and your families to not feel like they're a square peg and like they're, like they're other there. You are there for them. Mm -hmm. You are there to make them feel included. The, the description you gave earlier of the mom or the dad or the caregiver or the other family member or whoever, who also speaks that dialect. And they're not there for the treatment, but they can hear the way that you're speaking about their child. I mean, the whole, in terms of considering the whole family, um, and semantics matters is I, I, and we've had this conversation across a variety of different topics in our field. Um, and I think it's critically important for SLPs, all clinicians, humans to realize that semantics really matters.
2: Yeah. Because it speaks to those underlying assumptions that we're making. So I'm going to go into some more terminology that matters. Um, so when we talk about a client's language development and their language goals, particularly for school age children, we have to talk about linguistic environment. And we tend to talk about language environment in pretty flat terms, assuming that a client speaks one way at home and needs to speak another way at school or at work, which is monolingual mainstream American English. And there's a lot to unpack there. First, I wanna talk about home language. I've moved away from this term, first because of what it implies about non-mainstream dialects and languages other than English, but also because again, it's not accurate. So to my first reason, to talk about a home language or dialect pits that dialect against a school dialect, which is assumed to be a better, more educated way of speaking. And this type of language has often been used in the context of code switching, where students are told that they can speak their native language or dialect at home, but not at school. At school, you have to speak English and this communicates to a child that they have to hide who they are when they come to school so it's an assimilationist approach to say leave your culture at home you can't be different here and it's harmful to the child and it's disrespectful to their culture again white supremacy (laughs)
0: I love the I grand gesture you make with your hands when you say that. It's it really everywhere. does it. I'm I'm just, I'm, it, because it's everywhere, exactly. Let me
1: ask you, what do you use instead? How do you describe that this is a student who is learning multiple languages? Like when you're doing your documentation, what does your documentation look like? Again, just thinking about me, how am I gonna start writing this differently? thinking about our listeners, how are they gonna start writing this differently?
2: So instead of saying home language or home dialect, say native language or native dialect, because, and this goes to my second reason, to say that someone has a home language implies that they speak it only at home and that's not accurate for most people. So let me give you an example. I don't. We like it yeah. you. Paint a picture for us. <laughs> it's a very simple one. When I walk into a classroom, I don't stop being black, right? I'm black all the time. <laughs> Similarly, okay. when I walk into a classroom, I don't stop being a speaker of African American English, whether you hear me use it or not. So, this goes to kind of the counter to that term home dialect or home language, where we assume that the school dialect is mainstream American English, but there are schools where both the students and the teachers are speaking languages other than English, are speaking dialects other than mainstream American English. And that's important to consider when we're talking about a child's linguistic environment what languages, what dialects are the child being exposed to? Because we know from sociolinguistic research that children speak the language or the dialect of their affinity group, regardless of what their parents or even the teacher speaks in the classroom. At school, they're speaking like their peers. The other reason why this is important because there is research out there that talks about what it means for a child not to code switch to mainstream American English, and I won't get into the specifics of that research, but I think it's dangerous to make generalizations about a child, a child's linguistic abilities when they don't code switch to mainstream American English, or if they get low standardized English proficiency scores. Um, and I could do a whole nother episode. On
0: I was just about to say, you could probably, you know, there's so much to be said for testing bias. I mean, that's a whole other, whole other can of worms.
2: Right. But even outside of testing. So when there, there have been, I have seen some conversations online recently surrounding code switching, and there is this idea that um, that is supported by research that should be interrogated, (laughs) that students who do not start code switching to mainstream American English, um, by a certain age have lower language skills and lower metalinguistic abilities. And I say that that's a dangerous generalization to make because, we all have linguistic agency. And part of that agency is deciding what dialects we are going to use. And that is not always mainstream American English as because we are steeped in the US educational system, we believe that speaking mainstream American English is the only way to be successful, the only way to have academic success, Um, the way to to meet all of these school standards, i.e. white standards, i.e. white supremacy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And the The sociolinguistic research tells us that that's, that's just false, because we make these decisions about um, how we speak as a part of our identity development. And we have to get over the idea that everyone wants to speak mainstream American English, because that's not true. When we talk about dual language learners, they're not always acquiring mainstream American English. And oftentimes, that's an explicit choice because of who they identify with. It's not about being cool, as some SLPs have said it. It's about not being white, (laughs) right? Not
0: everybody. Please just let it know for the record that there were air quotes around being the being cool. (laughs) But I think when you're thinking about
1: the linguistic environment, like that's a really important thing to again just point out, guys, not everybody wants to be in that one club. That's not the only club that is not like the the only game in town. And and back to when we're when we're acting as speech pathologists and not being cognizant of that and not being cognizant of people who are dual language learners
0: then we're, we're confused and perpetuating it and, 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 you know, allowing the the cog to continue or, you know, allowing the wheel to continue. And again, I keep thinking about that, that, you know, thinking of it as a road and like how far we have to go and the beginning of that road of just identifying it, just, just realizing that it's implicit and it's automatic. And then, you know, using that to alter some of these, Seemingly small things that are not small, mm-hmm. and that the research that you that you just quoted that I obviously don't know anything about, um, I think is, I, I we don't have the time to get into that today, but I wish we did because it seems like a false, what would you call it, like a false flag, false reasoning. I mean, mm-hmm. there it sounds like. I, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about the count, the research that counters that point. In, the, um, in other fields in, you know, tell us more about that.
2: Yeah, so um, there is a study by Goldstein 1987, I believe it is, and another one by Carter 2013. And both of these studies um, follow adolescents who are native Spanish speakers acquiring English and their dialect, their English dialect of choice is African American English. And so they interviewed these students and these students are able to articulate that they are aware that they are speaking the dialect of their Black peers and not of their white peers, because they don't want to talk white, (laughs) because they're not white, right? And in our white supremacist society, right, when you're experiencing um, abuses within the educational system that are based on whiteness, it's perfectly reasonable not to identify with that.
0: And not to engage in it for communication. I mean, which is your connection to your environment? Just to loop
1: us back and look at our learning objectives. I feel like we talked a lot about the dominant language ideology in the United States. We talked about the monoglot standard. We've talked about that linguistic environment in inclusive terms, in terms of like the dual language learners. Are there other pieces there regarding how we are more inclusive when we're talking about linguistic environments?
2: Um, I would just say considering um, and bringing it together, Considering that there's a language in the community that has um, what is called also in the sociolinguistic research social, social prestige. And so, in, in specific communities, um, the non mainstream dialect is the dialect that has social prestige. And so, um, And so when we're thinking about exposure, particularly for dual language learners, um, we have to be aware um, of what that dialect is and not assuming that um, they are, are acquiring mainstream American English so that when we're talking about their linguistic environment, we say that and that when we are evaluating them, we are not evaluating them against mainstream American English norms. And so being really clear about our description about what the dialect of the community is, what the dialect or language of the child's family is, what the dialect or language in the school is, right? All of those things are important.
1: I think that's really helpful because and that's a really good point that I hadn't thought about, but it's not even necessarily just about the school environment and just about the home environment. Your community environment adds another layer. And as AAC people, we think about environments all the time, right? We're like, oh, there's all these different environments and all these different communication demands. And,
2: you know, mm-hmm. it, it
1: makes a lot of sense that that's universal. That's something that's universal. And we should be thinking about all of those environments and all of the standards that are in play in all of those different environments because they're not necessarily the same and one is not superior to the other so
2: exactly so I have a couple more recommendations one is about relevant background information and this is something that was newly brought to my attention by a researcher in our field Shamika Stanford Dr. Shemika Stanford recently gave a talk for Bilinguistics SOP Impact. They had a series on equity and I would encourage you to listen to it because she's the expert on this and you should listen to her. But she talks about how the information we include in our reports has implications, not only for how other professionals see the student within the school environment, but also how law enforcement sees the student if they become um, involved in the criminal system. So students with language disorders are disproportionately represented in detention. And the language that we use in our documentation can be misinterpreted and have a negative impact on the child's case. For example, it's not necessary to include information about the child's living situation as it relates to who is or isn't present in the home or who in the child's life is incarcerated or who, um, how involved the parents are in the child's life, right? These are things that she has seen come up in reports, but they're not necessary for talking about the child's language. And these are things that carry weight in the courtroom and contribute to unfair rulings. So um, she talks about how jargon that we use can be misinterpreted. So we need to be clear about what we mean when we say things like the child has difficulty following directions. Um, And again, she, did a great talk on this. So, um, yeah,
0: we'll, will, we'll will link it in the show notes for everyone.
2: Perfect. And the last recommendation that I want to talk about is the respect of each family's culture, because everyone has their own way of identifying with their non-mainstream culture in relation to mainstream culture. So every family is different and We might be the expert on the language development and the disorders, but the family is the expert on their way of communicating. And that should be reflected in the goals that we write and the approaches that we use in treating our clients. So if you're not sure if a goal is appropriate for a particular client, ask the family. It's about co-constructing that treatment plan so that we are not just culturally responsive, but culturally sustaining in clinical practice, meaning supporting the client's communication goals as it relates to their native language or dialect.
0: And I, I can't say this enough. I think we bring it up once an episode. Indirect, n- not being able to bill for indirect service is a massive barrier to achieving some of these more inclusive practices. Mm-hmm because if you're a speech pathologist in a school and you have the best of intentions and you're doing your work and you're educating and you know that you, you know, need to account for all these things, but you have a caseload of 150, which I have heard of happening and you don't have time to eat lunch, much less really, you know, do your best work in terms of including the family or reaching out or, or asking those questions. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, you know, our field in general has a lot of work to do. And that is a piece of it. And I know it's like a dry, boring piece, but we can do our jobs better when we have time and funding to mm-hmm. do it.
2: And that's evidence-based practice. Like if you yes. go on the ASHA website, you see that triangle of clinical expertise, oh gosh, the, the research, right? And the client family values Like, it's yes. a triangle because all of them are equally you know. important.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. So if you're, do you, well, let's try and I, I really like it. Or we really try to have our listeners walk away with some, um, applicable suggestions for if you are in that position. And uh, we definitely recommend always that you advocate, go to your administration. If you don't have time, um, and bring all of this incredible research with you. Like, these are all of the reasons why I have to do this. That it's, it's not just evidence-based. It's, it's ethical. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's so critical. It's so critical. Do you have any other suggestions?
2: Those are all of my recommendations for the ways that we can start, right? <laughs> because this is this is just, we're talking about such a pervasive and such, um persistent and significant issue right and it's a big issue that has all of these interlocking pieces and interlocking systems that contribute to the perpetuation of these damaging ideologies so I offer these as a place to start and um I just I guess my in situating this in a larger vision for equity in our practice is thinking about linguistic diversity in non-hierarchical terms, right? There's this idea of linguistic plural, pluralism, which allows multiple languages and dialects to coexist in the same space right, without hierarchies. And so for me, linguistic equity means respecting people's linguistic agency, the choices that they make surrounding their linguistic practices. So I guess my big ask for the profession is that we do our part in working towards a world where anyone can be in anybody and speak any language or any dialect and be safe and have access And be taken seriously for their voice to be heard. Um, And so we have to be constantly thinking of ways that we can disrupt our dominating language ideologies so that we really come to believe that all dialects are capable of academic and intellectual expression. Um, Can we find ways? to educate others about linguistic ideologies and normalize linguistic um, diversity. Um, And how can we impact educational policies with our own practices so that our actions honor the integrity of non-mainstream dialects and minoritized languages and advocate for speakers of non-mainstream dialects when they're subject to linguistic discrimination. Um, We have institutionalized language and literacy and learning in so many ways that envisioning this type of environment may be challenging, um, but So it can, it can feel radical to imagine something different, right? And some of the language that I've used to talk about these things may feel radical to people, but um, I think when only when we start to use our imagination in that way can we see um, equity start to happen in our field. I can't follow that There's
0: up. nothing yeah, I, can I can say, say to nothing. top that. I can't, we can't say anything about that. That was, that was eloquent. I, I don't, I Thank don't haven't have words to describe. No, that. I think. Um, but we have to say something because, <laughs> because it's the end. Well, I guess one thing
1: that it makes me think about is just that there are lots of, there are lots of moving pieces where people can affect change, right? So you talked a lot today mm-hmm. about things that people can do at the individual kind of clinician level, um, and then also systemically, right? So there, are, you know, there are some things that we can do for those of us who work in any organization. That's not a private practice of one, I guess. <laughs> then you're, then you're hitting your administration <laughs> and your clinical <laughs> self at the same time. You get a twofer. Um, But, you know, then there are things you can do systemically. And then there is also, you know, I mean, Kate, you, you did a shout out to Asha earlier, but I think there are also things that we can do at the larger level too, whether that's within our national organization or, you know, broader within our own communities. But I don't know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there.
0: And I I think something else you said that really resonated with me was about, you know, how big the problem feels because there is so much to do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you have a big problem, you write down one small step, right? Exactly. So maybe just, you know, you know, if you are listening and you are feeling at all overwhelmed, either emotionally or academically, because this this talk has been incredibly chock full of resources and dense with with literature that everyone can go read that we will all have listed um, in the show notes. But if any of it feels at all overwhelming, I think even just making one choice, one small change in your documentation, semantics that you use, conversations that you choose to have, um, additional reading. We'll have it all listed. Would you like to leave our audience with any additional words of wisdom?
2: Do your part. <laughs> Do what you can, right? Because it it can't be solved by one person. Like, you're not going to solve the issue of linguistic discrimination, right? Um, so, remember that you can harness your personal power wherever you are and whatever whatever context you're in um, to do your part and reach out and find community with people who are also doing this work because um, it is challenging, but there are people out there doing it. And I think that um, finding community and having support in that way is important for us to be able to continue in this work.
0: Thank you so much. Hear, hear.
2: You're here. Thank you are much,
0: Chelsea. Um, if anyone has any questions about today's episode, you can feel free to reach out to us anytime. Info at slpnerdcast.com. Um, all of the resources that Chelsea has described or or discussed um will all be listed in the show notes so there is additional reading um, and additional resources to do some work if you so choose or take some action um and we uh, appreciate having you chelsea thank you so much thank for, you for coming on and um thank you everyone for joining us